0: Welcome to the Estate Agents Podcast. This week's episode is slightly different. I'm not joined by my co-presenters just for this brief introduction, but we have the legend that is John McGrath. Now we're going to be splitting this hour-long episode into two because there's so much content for everyone to take away. We want to make sure that everyone puts it into practice. So enjoy this episode and tune in next Friday for option two which will give the last part of the John McGrath interview. Happy listening. Welcome to the latest episode of the Estate Agents podcast. I've got my co-presenters, Stephen Brown. Hi, Stephen.
1: Morning, Luke.
0: How are you? I'm very good, thank you. So you can be the equivalent of um, Tom Panos today.
1: Oh, my word. um,
0: Because all will be revealed soon. And then we have uh, Andy Overman over in Fetford. Good morning, Andy morning luke how are you i'm very good and you can be the good looking one so you can be uh troy it's always, <laughs> so, a, it's always a first andy <laughs> <laughs> so uh the reason for that is we've got a very special guest today all the way over uh from australia we have uh the legend that is uh john mcgrath good morning john morning guys how are you luke yeah very good very good i really appreciate your time today john i know it's getting. Uh, towards the end of the day over in Australia. So uh, so let's, uh, let's crack on. So um, so with John, so John started selling real estate when he was 20 years old, and he's become one of the most prolific real estate salespeople known in Australia, but also around the world. I know that he has a particular following here in the UK. Um, and at the age of 25, he had the highest priced home and apartment uh, that was sold. So he started McGraw when he was 25 in 1989, and it's now grown to the second largest real estate group within the country with over a hundred offices and 12 and a half thousand sales people, which of 27 of those were in the top 100 agents in Australia and 18% of the top females in the country. Welcome, John. It's been a great privilege to to have you. Um, and I know Andy's um, desperate to ask you the first question, so uh, fire away, Andy.
1: Yeah, morning, John. Um, can I just say thanks for, for joining the uh, podcast today? Uh, absolutely privileged to be in such company. John, you were the uh, top agent in Australia when you were selling. Can you share with our listeners what you think it takes to be a million-dollar agent?
2: Yes, thanks, Andy. Um, look, I think, as always, there's there's a number of layers and And a number of elements not one or two things but if I think to the industry uh, I I think it's one of those great industries Andy where kind of anyone can get there from any background any education um, any gender anything really it's just a matter of if, if you're prepared to do the work in so I look at the industry and I think you know there's three kind of moving parts or key elements there's prospecting listing and selling and I know it's slightly different in the UK but basically you know they're the three things that have to be done to to earn a listing and then to get it sold. So I I just worked very hard as as Luke said in the introduction I started when I was 20 and there's a challenge that perhaps many of your listeners would would be across is you know when you're selling property for people that are generally 40 50 60 70 years of age and you're only 20 it's you've got to be actually taken seriously and you've got to compete against people that are kind of your parents or your grandparents age possibly in the industry as many years so the first thing I did was I worked extremely hard on product knowledge because I knew that I was kind of coming from a bit of a disadvantage being you know relatively young selling property. Most people in Australia probably don't start selling till their late 20s, early 30s, I guess. Um, but I got in right or wrong at an early stage and I thought, well, if I could if I could overcome some of the issues through having a superior product knowledge to my peers and to my seniors, that would be a really good start. So I just studied the market as though it was a Harvard business course. I I studied prices. I studied architectural styles. I studied the history of the specific area that I was working in predominantly in the early days, which is called Paddington uh, in Sydney, uh, inner city suburb, lots of Victorian terrace homes. So it's actually quite similar to to perhaps many areas in London. Um, And and I, I felt that that gave me the confidence to really you know, start to compete at a higher level at a relatively young age. So I think the first thing is, especially for the listeners who are who are kind of um, relatively new to the industry or perhaps in their first year or so of sales, um, product knowledge will take you a long way. The next thing was really just about learning my craft. And I think sales is a very honorable profession when done right, real estate sales. It gets uh, ridiculed quite a bit, and I think it gets ridiculed because for many, many years, the standard's been too low. but I think that if you really look at your craft and you break it down and so I unpacked it, so I went to seminar after seminar, and I read book after book and and I listened to cassettes in those days. There was no podcast like this; it was just you know going out and finding anything you could get to soak up the information and um I just really started to unpack it, and I looked at things like listening, you know what did it mean to be a great listener and, and you know it was kind of an odd question because I used to think listening was listening, but then i I unpacked that and I realized that, you know, there was active listening and deep listening and, you know, a way to listen that really um, uh, engaged with the person you were with. So I learned those things and I learned storytelling. Um, And I think that's a real key to success in any sales role is you have to be able to engage people and stories is particularly a strong way to do that. So I went and did a little uh, course by a company called Toastmasters. I don't know if you have them in the UK or perhaps that's where they started, but It basically taught, you know, just average people how to present in a public forum. And I was a shy young kind of guy and I I didn't have any pitching or sales skills to speak of. So I, um, I just went to this course and it was run over eight weeks and we went one or two nights a week and they basically taught you the, how to present your ideas in a group setting, which was terrifying of course, to, to me and, and it is to most people, but, um, I found once I became comfortable in a setting of being a great listener and then being able to pitch and tell stories, and then underneath all that was a great product knowledge, um, underscoring that, that kind of was the starting of getting into momentum. And then, uh, Andy, I just decided that everyone I dealt with deserved to have the best service experience of their life, and why wouldn't I give it to them? So I thought... That's about, you know, just a good strategy because it was hard to get listings in the early days at 20 years of age, but it was not hard to deal with buyers because they were generally, in this country anyway, neglected species. Um, They didn't get looked after by agents and, and many a time a buyer would give an agent a detailed brief and then two weeks later a property would come on the market and hit the paper and no one had rung the buyer about it. So I thought this is insane that you're not giving people service. So I just kind of developed a few of my own little very, simple uh, crude systems just to follow people through. In those days, Or a three by five card system on the desk. So if I spoke to someone, I took a note, and um, I then, uh, I just followed them through, and my commitment was to follow you through until you bought from me or anyone else, um, or you just made a commitment you didn't want to buy. And I would even ring up people, and I would tell them about other agents' listings, even those that I couldn't get access to, or what we would call a conjunction, so a commission split, I would just ring them up and I'd say, you should see that property down the road by XYZ real estate. I think it would really suit you. And they said to me, but you're not handling it. I said, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm I'm here committed to helping you and your family find a new home. And they found that was a bit of a breath of fresh air. So that was kind of, word gets around. I think when you when you do something well and when you move people and you look after people, generally speaking, word gets around. And then I started getting my first referral for a listing and, you know, and then things snowball from there. But, uh, you know, I, I certainly was very passionate about what I was doing and I was very thoughtful about it. And I guess at some point in our career, things come together, the planets align, and um, and hopefully you get your first sale.
0: Okay. So um, I think that was uh, absolutely uh, phenomenal. Um, so, Studying real estate like it's a Harvard business degree, the product knowledge, the the great listening skills, the storytelling. But that that's uh, that's going to going some way to service those buyers, even if they're not going to be buying from you. So absolutely, uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, so when um, when you were on the ground, John, and you were a, a selling agent, um, describe to me what your typical day and week is, because I know. Time management, um, and again, with referring back to Arik, it was uh, I think it was Tom Ferry that referred to time management or choice management. Um, so, um, how did you kind of structure and organize your day when you were a selling agent?
2: For me, there's, there's a couple of, of concepts one we call morning ritual, and the other one we call ideal week. So the morning ritual, the concept is from when you wake to when you start your first appointment, and there's often for people you know, two or three hours, it could be an hour or two, what do you do to get your soul um, stirred up and prepared and engaged so when the first people you meet and the first calls you make and the first meeting you walk into, you are fully prepared, fully charged up and ready to go because it's about moving people and making an impact so I find generally and i'm not sure what it's like in the u k necessarily, but a lot of people in australia they they have because they don't choose a morning ritual they have a lousy one so often they they get up, they check their email, they have a cup of coffee, they read the newspaper, they switch on the radio or the news, they jump in their car, they listen to more negative news um, and they do no mental preparation and often sadly no physical preparation so you know, for many, many years I've had a morning ritual which starts with getting up fairly early. Um, probably not as early as you guys got up this morning but um, I get up about 5.20 in the morning and then I do 45 minutes of, of exercise um, and then I meditate Then I have a, and I listen to a podcast or a series of different podcasts while I'm exercising. Then I meditate, then I jump in the shower and I listen to some more podcasts while I'm in the shower. So by quarter to seven, which is when I leave to go to work, Um, I'm kind of engaged and ready to go. And I start my first meetings at 7am or my calls and so forth. And I find that that first hour and a half, if you get it right, that generally leads to getting your first few appointments, calls and meetings right, which generally leads to having a good day and then a good week. So from my perspective, I think the first hour and a half are, are often neglected and underrated. Then I refer to the idea week. So idea week concept is, you know, let's assume you work five or six days. What are the most important things to do? And we spoke about prospecting, listing, selling a bit earlier in the interview. And what days and what times of each day do you choose are best for these activities? So a couple of sort of rituals for me, first thing in the morning, every morning, I would ring every vendor I had, which of course in the early days when you've got one or two is easy. But as you grow your business, it was a matter for me i wanted to know by 9am which is kind of when they started getting busy in their day they'd heard from me and i kind of let them know what was happening and if there'd been anything in the last 24 hours to report on and and what the next activity step was now my average days just to put in context my average days on market was about 21 now if your average days on market is 2 years that's probably not the exercise you need to or want to do but if you're in a market and you've got properties My playbook was very much around, we auction in Australia, as you guys know, perhaps not all your listeners are across. Um, So we auction, we get vendor paid marketing. So we extract about a percent of the value of the property from the vendor to help market the property. Um, We open the properties twice weekly. So we have a very concentrated selling effort, which is somewhat different from most other parts of the world, but it works very, very effectively. So my days on market, as I said, throughout my career were 21 days from the day I listed it till the day we exchanged contracts and the sold sign up was, was three weeks. So, um, and but I think a part of that wasn't just our, our selling style and the auction process. It was very much around managing my client's expectations, staying in touch to a degree. When, and some days I'd be in touch three, four, five times a day with a client if there was a deal starting to brew or a deal afoot. So, um, it, you know, for me, that was part of my daily ritual was ringing my clients first thing every day. That would be followed by ringing what I call my pipeline sellers. So these were the people, because I listed and sold, you know, in Australia we do both activities. Um, and so I was, once I'd looked after my own clients and, and sort of tucked them in for the day and they were all happy, then I'd start chasing all my pipeline clients. So these were the people that I called my, my pipeline A, which was the people that I knew were in the process, as we speak, of making a decision about who to choose to list their property. Not people that are going to sell in a year or two, but these are the people that were we're going to list this week or next week. So I, then I'd jump onto them, that's my next hour of the day. My third hour of the day, at least three times a week, was dealing with my best buyers. So I was working with generally 50 what I call hot buyers. Hot buyers again, someone that I'd determined were going to make a decision very shortly to buy a property. They'd been out, they'd been offering properties, they'd finance approved, they'd sold their own, they were bidding at auctions. So I knew these were hot people that I I had to stay very close to, Um, partly just to service them, um, partly because sometimes they're, depending on what they'd seen and what they were thinking and discussing as a couple or a family, their criteria might change. So I wanted to be on the front foot if they decided to spend a bit more money or change areas. So I would allocate three days a week, an hour, to speak to my hot 50 buyers, and, and sometimes that'll be twice a week to the same buyer. So I used to find that by 10 a.m. in the morning, I had made my most important calls. I'd spoken to my most important clients um, and I chased my most you know, relevant or, or, or closest business. And so by 10 o'clock in the morning, I remember hearing Bill Gates once say, you know, after I'd been doing this for a while, I'd kind of read something about him or I heard him say something about, he, he front loads all his most important appointments and meetings to first thing in the morning. So by 9.15 a.m., He's done what's most important and, and funny enough, I kind of did about the same. By 10 a.m. anyway, I had done the most important things in my in my business and for my sales people and then I would hit the road and basically then from 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m. through till dinner time, um, I was just from one appointment to the other. Well, one of the, the things that changed my life, guys, years ago, a guy called Bob Boland in the States that I've spoken about a bit at ARIC and conferences He was the number one sales agent, The the year I went to shadow him, I went and spent three or four days at his business and home, and I watched him, you know, be the world's best real estate guy, and that year he wrote 4.3 million US dollars, and we're going back 20 years, 4.3 million US dollars in fees, which is, you know, the average Australian Unbelievable, the average Australian probably writes 50,000 a a year, and I suspect it might be similar in, in, in Europe and in the UK. So he said to me, the one the one tip that he could share with me that he thought was, was most impactful to him was every single day, he would be face to face with five qualified clients, or he would actually, he used the words, I have five meetings with qualified clients every day. And I said, did that mean listings or sales? He said, doesn't matter. If I'm in front of five people that are in a position to say yes to a buying decision or yes to a listing decision, he said, I knew that would that process and that discipline would make me successful. And he came from a very different industry. used to run an abattoir in in Brighton, Michigan, um, you know, in in the food industry, and he switched into real estate sort of at a mature age when he was probably in his late 30s, early 40s. And um, he knocked it out of the ballpark, and that was his number one strategy. So I ask people when I'm coaching them, and I go through their diary for the last couple of weeks, and I say, well, let's highlight Every time you're face-to-face in front of someone who is in a position to say yes to a listing or a sale. And for most people, it'd be lucky to be one a day, maybe two if they're doing quite well. And yet Bob created a routine that every day, five face-to-face qualified meetings with buyers and sellers. And so you know I kind of adopted that also myself as I progressed through my career, and I just made sure I got rid of everything else, delegated all of what we call non-dollar productive activities, things that... We're not listing, prospecting, selling, negotiating, but all the other stuff that happens in a real estate world and someone's got to do it. But if you're a top salesperson, probably best not you do it. We need someone in your team or in your business or to hire someone to do that. And, um, yeah, that was also a very, very successful strategy.
0: Fantastic. Now, that's really, really enlightening and how you talk about that preparation uh, in the morning about getting your body ready. Uh, And it's a bit like priming a machine or or letting a car warm up before it's ready to go off racing. Um, You've got to put your body and your mind through that process um, and also structuring your your week so that um, you I think Tom, Tom talks about it. So you have a day by design and not a day by accident um with it so but I know um Stephen's uh pressing to to kind of see how the the Australians compared to the UK counterparts so
1: Stephen I'll hand it over to you brilliant John thank you amazing content loads of learning loads of insights and loads of top tips um how do you think the Australian real estate professional goes about their work differently to say their UK counterparts
2: Stephen, yeah. Look, I guess a couple of the things we've just covered that in Australia, um, how does it work? So the sales agent does both the listing and the selling, and and I think in many parts of the UK anyway, there's often an office manager that may do the bulk of the listing, and then you've got a sales team around it in some areas anyway. Whereas in Australia, you're kind of you're it. You go out there, you prospect for yourself, you meet the client, you hopefully list the property, then you go looking for buyers. Now. Within a sales environment or a team environment, you'll have other agents within your office that will also be generally introducing their buyers to your listing. So that, that's kind of our, our role uh, if prospect lists sell. Um, we generally get paid about 2 to 2.5% two of the property's value as a selling fee, and that's often split 50-50 between the house, the company, and the agent. Um uh, and about one percent generally uh, if you're going to auction a property, you would then ask the client for another 1% an an one percent or on a hundred or a million dollar property eight nine ten thousand dollars to contribute to the marketing of the property. so we would do certainly in our company, we probably do thirty to forty percent of our sales through auction in the big cities it's much higher some of our agents, our top agents, a guy called Peter Chauncey um and he's, he's actually number two in the group but he's he's a brilliant agent and one of the best in the country um and last month and, and australia at the moment is considered like many parts of the world a bit of a tough market we've been through a fairly you know strong boom three or four years it's kind of come back a bit it's dropped in about 10 percent in value in the last 12 months having said that it went up 60 or 70 percent in value the preceding four or five years so it's not it's not desperate but certainly a lot of the industry is feeling the pinch now and and an industry where the average agent sells one a month Peter last month sold or exchanged 17 properties averaging just over two million Australian dollars so almost anywhere in the world he'd be you know at the top of the tree and um, you know I just, I just look at Peter and I think and we, And I actually interviewed him on an in-house equivalent of what we're doing here today. It was an in-house webinar we do every single week. and um, and and I interviewed him the other day, and there was there were just a few things that that struck me in the interview as I was listening. Firstly, is the guy is extremely likable. He's just a nice person, and and yes, he's he's steely and he's tough and he's focused. And he's 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 a no garbage sort of guy, but I gotta tell you, he's he's got a lot of likability factors. He's very authentic, he's softly spoken, he's considerate, um, he thinks before he speaks. He's kind of all that we we teach people to be trusted advisors as well as salespeople, and I think there's room for both in the one body. So, you know, Peter is terrific about that, but I said to him, you yeah, know, what did you do when the market tightened up? And he said, John, I started with the basics. He's always been a very fit guy. He runs generally, you know, sort of six, seven, eight kilometers every single day. Um, You know, doesn't smoke. You know, he's in good shape and so forth. But uh, he said to me, I went back to the basics. He said, I upped my exercise and I tightened up my um, food intake and I made sure that I was eating the very best. So here's a guy in a sales environment and he's talking about basics, which is make sure my fitness and energy is at, at peak state. And make sure I'm putting good quality, nourishing food in my body. Because he said, I've got to go out to war every day. And I'm battling with other agents <clears throat> to try and win the listing. And I'm battling with buyers that are telling me it's a bad time to buy. And telling me that, you know, all the, all the negatives of the marketplace around. And he said, so the first thing I did is I cleaned up the basics. Second thing is, I stopped listening to the market. He said, I, I made sure I didn't listen to any, any media. I didn't read any newspapers. I didn't engage in any negative dialogue. 'Cause he said it's all it does is it erodes your confidence and he said it was irrelevant. All I can do is go out there and do my best to list a property, then my best to market and sell it. So, you know, he said all the other stuff was just stuff and noise and was a distraction. He said, So I became super positive, fitter than I've ever been. I shielded myself from the negativity. Then he said it's really just a process. He said every day you follow a process. You turn up to a listing, there's a process, there's like 23 things you do if you're going to do it properly. And he said, I just made sure I ticked every box. And then when you're showing a property and selling a property, there's a process. So he talked about process, 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 really critical. Next thing he said, I detached myself from the outcome because he said, John, I can't control what the vendor says or the seller says and what the buyers do. I can only control what I do. So he says, I can control whether I prospect or not, whether they want to speak to me, want to meet me or 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 not is really up to up to them but he said i can control picking up the phone ringing with gusto and saying something which is relevant to them giving them some update um and he said i can control that so he said i just kept focusing on what are the things that i could control um he talked about with with his vendors if prices weren't aligned because you know in a market that's softer in a good market it sort of covers a multitude of sins and you can kind of list a property at the wrong price, a little bit too high, and the market will probably catch up sooner than later. Whereas in a market where you know the prices have come down, if you screw up the right listing price when you list the property, you can then miss the market, it drops further and you're doing a total disservice to your vendor. So he said, we, we move with urgency within the first couple of days of having the property listed. Our commitment was getting half a dozen buyers through, having a, an intelligent, thorough conversation with them, Getting, sort of picking out the people that really had some value to add in terms of their feedback on the property and the price and where it sat in the market. And he said that he was then face-to-face within 48 hours with his vendor having a business meeting talking through. He said in the old days, maybe maybe that was halfway through a sale campaign or after two or three weeks, but he said things have changed. And he said if you don't pivot fast when things change, you're going to get left behind. Uh, the other thing he said to me was really important because a lot of agents in the market here have been finding it's sort of hard to give the vendor the feedback because they knew their property was worth a million dollars last year, and the agents are now saying, well, to be honest, it's probably nine twenty five a year later, and in reality, the market could come through and say it's eight ninety and they were having trouble with having this conversation, and Peter said, yeah I just adopted the belief that every vendor deserves to hear the truth. So he said, it's not emotional, I don't engage in it, I don't feel bad about it, I don't feel good about it, I just say that every vendor deserves to hear the truth, so it's my role is to tell them what the market's saying so they can make an intelligent decision. And those sort of things, I mean, for me, that was just gold, I've been in the industry 35 years and to hear that, just simple basics about getting your body right, getting your mind right, shielding the negativity, adopting the process, detaching yourself from the outcome, and just insights like, you know, just the vendor deserves to hear the truth, so give it to them. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't embellish it. Don't, you know, kind of protect them from it because you're actually not protecting them from from it. You're actually harming them by not letting them know what the market's doing so they can make a value add or or judgment around it. So, you know, that, that that was a really great thing for us this week.
1: Yeah, John, it seems like the uh, market there is very similar to the one that I'm experiencing here over in the east of England. Um, I've been an agent for 25 years and and you, you build up a, a kind of resilience to the market. For some of our listeners who are perhaps fresh into the industry or haven't experienced a, a softening or a slowdown of the market, how do you develop the confidence needed to be a dominant agent or a force to be reckoned with in your area?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, Andy. Look, I think that confidence is a state of mind over and above everything else. The only difference between the person that walks in in a confident state and the one that doesn't is the decisions they've made and and the the visualization they have about themselves and what they can bring to the market. So I think
0: if your listeners just realize
2: that confidence is not necessarily something you'll pick up over 10, 20 years, confidence is when you make the decision that you are the best agent for the job and you, and you back that up with you, you've worked on your craft and you've worked on your skills and you've worked on your product knowledge, um, you then become the agent of choice in your own mind, but you have to be your agent of choice in your own mind before you are in their mind. So I think that's, that's really critical, work on, on the basics. In, in a tougher market, um, again, it's a matter of increasing the, the amount of buyer work um, that you're doing. Um, working with more buyers, more buyer appointments on a daily basis. I think more frequent conversations with both your buyers and your sellers. So if you used to call your buyers every two weeks or you know every few days if there's a deal, you're now ringing them every week and two or three times a day if they're actually negotiating on something. Same with your vendors, uh, your sellers. You know whoever is managing that relationship has got to get closer than ever before. But you know the media is doing half the job of managing expectations certainly in our country at the moment is there's been no shortage of you know 6 pm news and, and, and front page news about how soft the property market is and it's dropped and so forth. So you know, people you've got to give them you know their dues, they're intelligent, they're in touch and they know that the market's a bit soggy if it is. Um, so I think that's that's really critical. But at some point, I remember when I was 20 and I started and, and I was starting to have doubts as to whether I'd entered the market a bit too young, a bit too early. My old boss, the one I, that I'd left to, to go go into sales, because um, I used to be in property management renting flats out, and then I left him because he wasn't a real sales company. He was more of a property management specialist, and I went to this very small little in inner a, in a city uh, company and, and he said to me I was too young to get the sales and it took me six months to get my first property sold despite all my efforts and service and hard work and you know, 80, 90-hour weeks and so forth. And I started wondering whether he was right uh, and, until I was picked up by a colleague of mine and he said, you know, the reality is if you're good enough, you're old enough, just make the decision, commit, and, and you've got to banish the doubt, get rid of the doubt you have about yourself and I think a lot of people never do that. You know, they, they, kind of, they never hit their straps. They start by thinking big. They have big goals. And then all of a sudden, they hit a bit of rocky road. And they don't quite have the results they wanted. And then they start lowering their expectations. And, and, and before long, they've just lost confidence in themselves. And they're just kind of one of the thousands and thousands of a sea of faces of agents. You've got to move up above that. You know, you've, got to be, you've got to be spectacular every day. You've got to be doing something, and the way that you are in your marketplace, the vibration and the energy you give out, has got to be attracting people towards you and towards your business. So um, I think it's it's just a matter of, of going through the process. Uh, are you the best? It's interesting, Andy. I'll often say to, to my team when I'm coaching, prospect list sells zero to 10. Give me your number. Where do you rate? If 10 was world best and zero was worst, Zero to ten, where are you as a prospector? Where are you as a lister, and where are you as a seller salesperson and the the number the range that I get most frequently and this is from my team who are pretty pretty efficient generally goes from somewhere between a two and a three up to a six or a seven and, and if I had to put an average on it, I'd call it a five and I think wow, like if this is your full time career and you're committed to it and you're two, three, four, ten years in, who knows. And and the 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 best you can rate, or and I appreciate their honesty, but why are you a five out of ten negotiator? That's just unacceptable. You go on to, you know, perhaps, you know, Andy, when you and I started, you know, going back 20, 30 years, 30 for me, 35, if I wanted to find out stuff about negotiating, I had to go up to a public library and sift through and try and find a book that was kind of not out of date. Nowadays, you're two clicks and you're on YouTube and you're on the internet and you're listening to podcasts, there is zero excuse for not being the best at what you do other than complacency and laziness. Um, because all the information, most of it is is free. Um, even a lot of the best stuff is free, like your podcasts and YouTube. There's so many great things that you listen to, but you've got to put it into practice and you have to be prepared to make some changes. I mean a lot of people hit a certain age in their life and their life cycle and they kind of they rust up and they stop being flexible and they stop being prepared to reinvent themselves. They say, "Well, I'm not a morning person and that's not my style." And yeah, that, they're all your decisions. You know, you can be a morning person, you can not be a morning person. You can be outgoing, you can be a brilliant negotiator, or you can not be a brilliant negotiator. It just depends what sort of work you're prepared to put in. So, um, yeah, I think that's the exciting thing about this industry is. You'll never stop learning or you never have to stop learning. Um, there's no limitation on your income earning capacity other than that which you put upon yourself. Uh, if you're prepared to think big, back yourself and do whatever it takes to get yourself mentally, physically and skills based right up to world class. Um, then you're the only one's going to stop you.
1: That's absolutely phenomenal advice, John. And um you know, when we speak, we've been speaking to a lot of agents, both in the UK and, and, and recently overseas there in Australia as well. And I think one common theme is uh, people speak very, very highly of you um, and, uh, and your organisation.
0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Estate Agents podcast. I hope you have a great weekend. Please tune in next week where we'll be releasing two further episodes and also the final part of the John McGrath interview. Uh, please rate and subscribe on itunes and soundcloud thank you very much